I came across an article this week by a group that call themselves the Rescued Film Project. And the idea behind the Rescue Film Project is that they go looking for old, undeveloped film in people's cameras. So perhaps uh, in old estates um, or um, somebody's home that's been sold. The idea is to try and find photographs that have either been forgotten about or for whatever reason. And they develop it and they put it on their website. Uh, because they believe that these are pieces of history that nobody has seen yet. There's pictures there that should be seen. They've been taken, they've been captured. And for whatever reason, whatever happened to the photographer at the time or something, maybe they were lost, or, but they believe that these photos ought to be seen because they were important at the time. And so then they're developing this guy behind the project a couple of weeks ago came across 31 rolls of film. Um, from World War II, um, a soldier who had been in World War II. And it was in the old medium format film, and uh, the group developed it black and white, and you know, with the fix and everything else. Really old school set that they, they, to reveal some elements of time 70 odd years ago, whatever it is now. And it struck me what a cool idea this was. Um, and as I went through some of the images to see some of the soldiers lining up and heading off to war and some of them um, coming back, and, and it was fascinating. And then I got to think about the process that that took. I'll be brief, okay, because it's maybe not that interesting for some, but there is in photo- photography what you call a latent image. A latent image. And... Le- just to explain that, it's when you take a piece of photographic film, that's what was used a long time ago for the younger ones there, you know, everything wasn't digital, or just you didn't whip out your, your phone and take a picture. And what they did was the, the light then exposes itself to the film, and the film is basically gelatin that's been really sort of hardened and thin, and this thin chemical layer of uh, silver bromide is just on it, and the light activates it. Uh, capturing the image and then it's developed and you're able to take it and put it onto a a larger picture and uh, that's the chemical process of the latent image latent simply means it's there but it's unseen it's there but it's unseen so essentially in all of these films or these 31 rolls of film that this guy found there were all these pictures that found by this modern photographer pictures that had been taken pictures that were their images that had been captured but they were undeveloped and therefore unseen and so that got my attention and the reason i'm explaining this essentially is because this is what jesus does to us whenever we're born We are made in the image of God. God breathes life into us, and in our soul, we have this image of God. We are stamped in creation with the image of God. But that image gets obscured because of our sin, because of our culture, because of our upbringing, until we are born again. And when we are born again, this latent image... That picture that's been there right from the very beginning when God breathed life into us is developed and revealed and shown by Jesus Christ in the process of sanctification. And we suddenly reveal the image that's been there this whole time as God molds us and shapes us into his image. We become a showcase. 
We become a workmanship, a craftsmanship, uh, his master's piece, as Paul talks about in Ephesians. And so Jesus was in the business of finding people, and we see it throughout the New Testament, finding people stamped with the image of God, that image that had been obscured, and then he sets them free. He heals them. He restores them. He develops them. And then he showcases them. And every time he does it, people ood and add and were amazed and glorified God in a much greater way than I did whenever I saw these pictures on the camera or on, on my computer. <coughs> I went, oh, cool, you know, there's a Coca-Cola truck or, oh, wow, you know, there's, there's soldiers all on, on that uh, vehicle. And, but Jesus saves and develops people is the most amazing thing ever. And you would think then, that people would go crazy whenever they saw that happening in real life, whenever they saw Jesus healing and restoring. And, but there were people throughout Scripture who were so bound by their background, so bound by their tradition and by their upbringing, that they just couldn't stand to see what Jesus was doing in the lives of people. And that's something that I, I think has always been, I've always been conscious of when looking at Jesus in, in the New Testament that he, he always sort of has a disconnect with the religious people. There's always a, a conflict. There's always tension between the, the supposed religious people, the supposedly people who were in the know. And yet he was far more welcoming to the, the prostitute and to the thief and to the tax collector, to the sinners, to the people that nobody wanted to associate themselves with. He embraced them. He loved them. He developed them, and he showcased them. And that's important to remember, because tonight we're going to be looking at a type of seed that Jesus spoke about on a couple of occasions, but each time it's a slightly different setting. So to really get at the heart of what this picture is about, I want to try and uh, take you to the first picture and try and explore it a wee bit, then go to the second picture and see, okay, right, well, well, here's, here's the similarities, and then go to the third picture and say, okay, so here's what we think this, this seed is really a picture of and what Jesus was talking about whenever he used it. So in Luke 13, we'll start there. Now, Luke 13 and Matthew 13, uh, the first two are pretty much saying the same thing. And then we'll finish in Matthew 17, which has a slightly different teaching on the mustard seed. But while they say that a painting or a picture paints a thousand words, they didn't have cameras in those days. But what they did was they, they told picture stories. And we talked a wee bit this morning about how we always appreciate a story. And it was in connection with gossip, but we, we do love stories. We love pictures when we can imagine things. And so parables, which were far more uh, accessible for people than long, complicated theology, were a way of teaching people. And so what I want to do tonight is hopefully show you a picture of grace. A picture of grace. That even whenever we feel that we are falling short, even when we feel like we are failing, even whenever we feel like we are not big enough or good enough or strong enough, the mustard seed is a reminder that God has not finished developing us yet. There's still more work to be done. And if we're patient, he will do that. There is growth that will come. That's hopefully what we're trying to get at. And so I'm saying at the start in case you get lost along the way, that's where we're going. So Luke 13. 
and then we'll go to Matthew 13. Uh, hopefully that you can read that. Luke 13, verse 10. Now, he was teaching, this is Jesus, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, or, or the pastor, if you want, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come in those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you in the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, and all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore. So because of this, because of everything that's just happened, because of this miracle, because of this confrontation with the pastor, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? What is the church really supposed to be like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So this woman was, was, had some sort of degenerative spinal condition. <coughs> a couple of people had different ideas of what it might be. Doesn't really matter for the story. Doesn't really matter for what's happening. Because whatever the physiological reasons are, they're secondary. Because in verse 16, Jesus tells us, look, what's really happening here is this woman's been bound by the devil. And so Jesus highlights that there's something deeper that's going on here beyond just the, the physical. But what I do want to, just while we're on this, I find it fascinating that effectively on church, there is this woman who's been suffering for 18 years. And she's at church. And I just wonder how many of us would suffer chronically for 18 years like that. And maybe just find an excuse not to get to church every single week. Uh, maybe find an excuse not to go. Uh, I'm having one of my bad days. Oh, well, you know, I mean, I had people around during the week and I'm suffering now. I'm bent over. I can't make it. Now, bear in mind, they didn't have cars. They didn't have public transportation. They had to walk places. So evidently, here's a woman who's in the synagogue, who's in church, who has not found it in her heart to be resentful for her condition, or at least not resentful towards God for her condition. She's not saying, how could a God of love allow this to happen to me? I'm not going to church anymore. I'm not going to synagogue anymore. Actually, no, she's on the synagogue on the Sabbath, worshipping with the rest of the people. And when Jesus saw her, he calls her to him. Now, again, it's just this little thing that kind of uh, pictures in my head. Oh, Jesus, you're in your early 30s. Surely you could go to her. This woman's hobbling around the place. Surely you could, the least you could do is go to her. Why are you calling her to you? Again, it's just sometimes the way my, my brain works, and I'm just asking these questions. 
I, I think it's about faith. I, I think what we see here is a picture of her being called to faith. It says, are you prepared to come in expectation? Are you prepared to, to go just beyond attending a place, but actually approach the Savior? Are you prepared to approach God whenever he calls you with expectation? Because we should always remember that coming to church in and of itself isn't enough. But what we really ought to seek to be doing is coming to the Savior, coming face to face with God, and that's when we come with expectation. And Jesus heals her. And it's beautiful, it's wonderful, and yet somehow, for some reason, it's controversial. One guy kicks up a stink, because, let's be honest, there's always one guy who likes to kick up a stink, especially when it comes to church. There's always someone who has to kick up a stink about something. How can he heal on the Sabbath? Crazy. I mean, well, some things to notice about this guy this pastor, this ruler of the synagogue. He's extremely passive-aggressive. I want to give a message to you, but I'm too scared to directly confront you, so I'll kind of announce it to the world around me. This isn't right. This is an outrage. This is wrong. If you want to get healed, don't do it on the Sabbath. Come on some other day. There's six days when you can be healed. And really, this is kind of the worst way to communicate where you kind of stand close to somebody you want to speak to, but you just sigh really. <sighs> you know, like, I, I do it in cues all the time, okay? I'm really bad at this. But it's like, you know, you're kind of, you <sighs> You know, and you sort of just, you know, you're kind of, you're letting yourself be known without actually directly dealing with it. Now, it really is a really bad way to communicate, and I'll hands up the saying, I've just admitted that I'm really bad at being passive-aggressive sometimes, but I'm also really bad at putting up with people who are passive-aggressive. So forgive me for the irony there, but I'm not very good um, at dealing with it in my own self, but I'm also not very good at dealing with it in, in other people's lives as well. It's a weakness, so pray, pray for me. But you'll notice that it's a trait that actually a lot of religious people have, being passive-aggressive. If they aren't following the right steps, if they're not doing it right, any blessings that they receive must somehow be compromised. They must somehow be fake for it. It must somehow not really be from God. It must be wrong. It must be flawed. It must be artificial in some way, which is so ungospel. Because the gospel's all about grace. The gospel's all about undeserved uh, receiving from God. It's about the goodness of God, not the work ethic of man. But some people can't handle that whenever God is good to people who do it slightly differently than them. Even in the church, even pastors. See, at least it's certainly according to Luke 13. Second thing to notice about this guy is that instead of rejoicing that the woman is healed, he gets bent all out of shape over the head of it. He's upset. He resents the hassle. He's been offended, and he wants everyone to know. So because he doesn't like it, he publicizes it. He wants to make a deal of it. He doesn't want to be happy for this woman who's probably been coming to his church, to his synagogue, for a long time. Which is weird, isn't it? I mean, imagine thinking 
that God would work on the holy day. Imagine thinking that God would do a good thing for this faithful woman on the day whenever we've all gathered together to worship him and gather around him. Sorry, I'm getting passive aggressive again. I told you to pray for me. But you think, mate, when was the last time you actually saw someone get healed like this? When was the last time, unless you've been following Jesus around, when was the last time you'd have seen something awesome like this happening? You probably have never seen something like this happen before. So you should be rejoicing. This is amazing. This is a miracle. But no, he's so resenting the hassle, how it doesn't fit in with his way of thinking, he can't rejoice in the healing. But the third thing to notice in verse 15 is that the rabbis have a strong law and strong feelings about abusing animals. The, the Jewish culture was very strong in animal welfare. That um, they were, you know, which is a good thing. But do you get the irony here? And Jesus points it out. He says, hold on, listen, animals that are tied up on a Sabbath, you're still going to untie them and let them get water. You're going to allow them to get refreshing. You're going to allow them to get relief from being tied up. This woman's been tied up by Satan. But you're not going to allow her to find healing? You're not going to allow her to find refreshing? Which tells me that they valued the animals more than they valued people. And to be honest, it would seem that society is in that same kind of place. Because the majority of people will boo and disdain anyone who wants to wear real fur, or, or, or go hunting. You know, you see the hate that people who will get, you know, if they put up a picture of, you know, hunting African elephants or, you know, lions or whatever, and the hate that they get for it. And yet most animal rights activists are also pro-abortion. Don't kill the trees, don't kill the foxes, but you know what, it's your choice if you want to kill your baby or not. It's madness, isn't it? Jesus calls this pastor out on all these things in his answer. And I've got the people jumping. Look at verse 17. People are loving how Jesus has put this loser in his place. Because that's how they're looking at it. This is how they're seeing it. But Jesus wants to just calm them down. He brings just perspective to the three groups here. The healed woman, the passive-aggressive pastor, and the cheering crowd. So we've got three elements in the mix here. And Jesus then turns around and says to them, okay, listen, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Let's go back to the the verses. Um, He says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? What will I compare to? Verse 19, it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. A grain became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Okay, so it's like a mustard seed that becomes trees, and it's got birds in it. Strange. So let's see if the other time that he uses this exact same picture will help us any. Let's turn to Matthew 13. Okay, and I'm really just trying to build up an understanding here of the picture, of the context of it, so we can get a clear vision of this. And so Matthew 13, Jesus has told them the parable of the sower and the soils. I'm sure you know the story well. Um, uh, Seeds going into thorny ground and stony ground, the path and the good soil. And in verse 10, the disciples are like, yeah, we don't understand what that means. And Jesus kind of almost shows a wee bit of frustration with them and says, guys, how do you not know what this means? Are you still not catching on to this? And so he goes on to explain it. We know that the seed is the gospel and the grounds are different types of heart that can receive the gospel. 
and it's about different reactions to the gospel. That's what this story is about. That's what this picture is about that Jesus is developing. So again, there's this mustard seed comparison where we've got lots of different people here in the context of this story. And then he fires out a series of parables, and then in verse 31, he puts another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So pretty much we have the exact same picture in two different parts of the Bible in two different settings. Now, here's the truth. Many commentaries have lots of different ideas about what the mustard seed in this picture really represents. But Jesus uses pictures that we've seen in Scripture before. And so if we're to be sure that we're going to be accurate, it's better to go back and say, okay, well, what do those other pictures mean that he's kind of bringing out of the filing cabinet, that he's bringing out of storage and bringing before us? Because that'll help us. A couple of things, though before anyone kind of says, well, you know, Jeff, you know, the mustard seed isn't really the smallest seed. Yeah, we know that, and Jesus knew that. Of course he did. But he's speaking about typical seeds that you'd have in your garden. He's talking about typical things that you would see. And so they would have understood this, you know. And so he says, look, the mustard seed, all right, it's the smallest seed. He goes, yeah, 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 I, I know what you're saying. It's the least, it's the smallest one in my garden. Next thing you might say is, yeah, but... Jeff, the mustard seed, it doesn't grow into a tree. It's really more of a bush, a shrub. Yes, you're right. But there is a variety called the Kerdal mustard in the Middle East, and it does grow into a tree about 12 feet tall, um, so about one and a half of me. And the branches can be strong enough to, for birds and all to nest in it. Okay, so maybe 12, 15 feet tree, you know, branches. and It's enough for, for birds. It's not typical. It's not the most common. But they can grow quite large. And this is what most would believe that Jesus was referring to, this kind of particular type of mustard seed. Now, what's the common misinterpretation? Here's what most people will say that it means. Or the most common wrong interpretation, should I say. They'll say the gospel starts like a seed. Whether it was just like one person in Jesus, and then it goes to the 12 disciples, and then it goes to the 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, and then it goes and it branches out, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's a picture of the church growing in size and growing in influence and growing in power and stature. And the birds are a picture of humanity that can take refuge in the branches of the gospel. That's the typical interpretation. Neither text gives us an explanation. So it's maybe easy to just go with that. It's a nice picture. But let's find out, because Jesus has already used the pictures of birds. The scriptures already used the pictures of trees. And he's using their, the Jewish people's knowledge of this to to apply it to the parable. So first of all, he has the birds. 
Okay, and a person will say, oh, well, yeah, the birds, that's the world. That's the world taking shelter under the nature, of, uh, the, underneath the wings of the church. People coming to be saved. Uh, the birds are people who get saved and find their home in God. Well, the parable of, of the sower that we've just read in Matthew 13, or that we just referred to in Matthew 13, it was birds that came and stole the seed away. It wasn't people who were accepting Jesus. The birds were the picture of the wicked one. And so in the parables, the birds are wicked. They're not good creatures. They were bad, and that was enough of that. There's enough of that symbolism throughout Scripture to kind of back that up. You go to Revelation 18, and it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become the dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirits, and a haunt for unclean birds. Birds are a symbol of evil. And um, I don't like birds, so I'm happy enough to just say, yeah, birds are evil. The Bible says so. So there you go. You don't have to convince me. Um, but it's a very apt symbol for, in many cases. And so in these parables, and even in other scriptures, birds aren't necessarily put in a good light. You think of um, Joseph. All right, Joseph, remember when he was in prison? And the, the, um, the butler and, and the baker have these dreams, and they come to Joseph, and he, and he interprets them. Remember the baker's dream? It was birds that came and pecked out his eyes, and it was birds that came and tortured him to death. And then you have the picture of the tree itself. In a couple of passages in the Old Testament, the Jewish listener would understand this, Daniel 4 and Ezekiel and others, a tree is a symbol of a world power an empire, an earthly empire that grows big and casts a shadow on the earth. That's what a tree does. In the, in the, especially in the Middle Eastern sun, it will cast a shadow on the, on the earth around it at different times of the day. And so Jesus is saying, yes, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It is going to be an empire of sorts. It's going to grow large from something quite small. But all that lodges within the branches is not necessarily good. There's going to be a lot of evil that goes on in the name of my kingdom. There's going to be a lot of good that goes on in the name of Jesus in the kingdom. But there will be horrible things done in his name as well. And that's why I see the interpretation of this parable based on some of the, those key elements. But let's put it together. The woman getting healed in Luke 13. The disciple asking questions in Matthew 13. What's the response? Jesus is saying, stop looking for this explosion of perfection in the church this side of eternity. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get that perfection. There will be imperfect people about. There will be people who disrupt. There will be people who miss the point. There will be growth. And some branches will grow really fast. But not all growth is natural. Not all growth is good. You're going to get people like this. You're going to get pastors who are passive-aggressive and uncaring for the sheep that they're supposed to be looking after. You're going to get imperfect people and you're going to get um, people who are difficult uh, because the tree is big. Birds are going to want to nest in it. You look at some churches in some countries, even the Church of England. It, it owns more land and has more wealth than many organizations. 
for-profit organizations. You look at the Vatican and its collection of land and art, and it's very political, it's very influential. But this side of heaven, look at the mustard seed. It can grow big, but growing big isn't the most important factor here. Because Jesus told us at the end time the church would, would, would shrink, that there would be a great falling away. So big isn't the most important thing when it comes to the church. So stop chasing after these things. Stop chasing after these artificial criterias and artificial critiquing of churches. Because you'll find that there'll be always kinds of birds that land in all kinds of churches. But even the large tree will still provide shelter and provision for those birds because that's in the nature of the tree to do. And it's a picture of grace. No individual church is perfect. The whole global church, it's not perfect. It's big. And it's going to draw all kinds of people to it. Now hold that thought. Hold that thought as we go to the third and final picture. Because like the photographs that I talked about at the start, God is doing something in this. He's developing us. He's working in us. He's bringing about that picture of himself in us, that latent picture. Please do not ever walk away from a church because of imperfect people. It's like walking away from a tree because there's birds in it. Don't walk away because some people didn't fit your criteria of what a Christian ought to be. Jesus said, look, this is the way it is. This is the way it is meant to be. And as a result, it's a picture of his power to hold the church together. And it's a picture of his grace to bring so many different people under his wings and under his influence. But also, I think it's a lesson not to cheer whenever the passive-aggressive person gets his comeuppance. It's not the time to cheer when the flawed leader gets exposed. Don't rejoice in people falling away and leaving the church and walking away from faith. Like the sower in the soil parable when the birds come. But rather, the people who come through the church who attach their name to it for one way or another are allowed to do so by a sovereign God whose greatest purpose in this life, in the life of believers, is to develop that picture of himself in us. And so all the imperfections around us are part of that plan, are part of that process that God is working out in our lives. Don't go looking for the perfect church. It doesn't exist because God doesn't want it to exist this side of eternity. It's a mustard seed that grows into a tree and birds nest in it. Let's go to Matthew 17. And um, this is happening just after the transfiguration. And uh, then in in verse 14 we read that uh, they, that's Jesus and that small group of the uh, disciples coming down from the mountain, they came to a crowd. A man came up to him, Jesus, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for he falls into the fire and often into the water. 
Now, if you have an old King James Bible, I don't know if anyone has an old King James Bible with him, but um, what it will say, it will say, my son is a lunatic. Um, now, I think a lot of fathers at different times have said that about their sons, bouncing off the walls and goes, he is a lunatic. See him driving that car? He's a lunatic. But the translation is literally epileptic. He's an epileptic. Um, Luna, from lunatic, it comes from Luna the moon. And an old ancient kind of thought process was that if you stared at the moon too long, you became a lunatic. You became crazy. And so certain neurological diseases, they say, ah, well, what's happened is he stared at the moon too long. He's a lunatic. But um, really what it was was epilepsy. So he brings uh, his son who he blames on the heavens. He blames on the zodiac and the stars and the moon. He's an epileptic. And Jesus heals him. Uh, And then uh, in verse uh, 16, And I brought him to your disciples, he says, but they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. So here we have another instance where a physical ailment was brought on by a spiritual condition, much like the young um, woman bent over in Luke 13, right? And they asked Jesus, these disciples, they come up to him and says, uh, how come we couldn't do that? Now, that is a good question. That is a good question. Lord, why can I not do the things that I used to do for you? Lord, I, I used to be able to captivate a, a congregation by preaching. Why can I not do that anymore? Don't, don't answer me that one, please. Don't, don't tell me why. Lord, I used to be unafraid in sharing the gospel, but now I'm, I'm timid. I used to be able to, to answer questions, and I don't feel like I can anymore. And I feel like, Lord, I'm not where I used to be in terms of my abilities and my giftings, Lord. Lord, why does it feel like my gift is fading away? That's the question that they're asking. It's a really powerful question. And so Jesus says to them, well, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. See, the disciples have performed these miracles before. They have cast out demons before. You go back to Matthew uh, 10, Matthew 10, and you have this kind of empowering of the disciples, and they go out and they do all these amazing things for, to prove God. They could exercise the power. Yet here it seems like their faith is sagging a little bit. It's less than what it ought to be. It's less than what it used to be. They've seen great things. They've done great things. But now they're at a point where perhaps they're trusting in their own abilities rather than the source, rather than Christ himself. And so they ask, well, why can't we do it now? That's the important bit. Why couldn't we do it? Because of your unbelief. See, because what's really going to happen here is then, it's not about you, it's about me. And so then he gives them something that we don't understand as much in the original uh, language. We'd understand um, rabbis, we'd talk about mustard seed faith. The idea is it starts off small and gets big. And then there's this other axiomatic phrase about moving a mountain. 
It's a figure of speech. It was a common figure of speech. The idea was that it meant to overcome difficulties. I'm going to move this mountain. I'm going to overcome that trial. I will run that marathon. I will lose that extra couple of pounds that I've been saying I'm going to lose. I will change the car this year. I will do this. I'm going to overcome this obstacle. I'm going to move the mountain. That's, that was, it was a figure of speech. Okay, please don't be thinking that Jesus literally was saying, listen, if you believe enough and your heart is pure, you can go to the Morn Mountains and start rearranging the peaks. Because he won't give you that kind of power. It would be senseless and pointless for you to start messing around with geography. Plus, on top of that, there is no instance where Jesus himself was able to say, I don't like that mountain. It looks better over here. And it got up and moved. There's no picture of that in throughout church history or anything. And you don't wake up any morning and say, all oh, right, I'm going to climb this mountain. Hey, who moved my mountain? What happened? And, and just people are constantly having to remap all the mountains because they're stupid Christians, they keep moving all the mountains on us. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And so it's a figure of speech that human difficulties can be overcome. And in this case, demon possession sickness by the power of faith in Jesus, that something even as small as their faith was at this point, which was wavering, which was struggling, can become big like a mustard seed, can grow and overcome impossibilities, so-called difficulties. And this verse, along with the others that have been hijacked by the faith movement, you know, how many times they say, oh, you can move mountains, you believe, you can do it. It's really dangerous. Because what Jesus said was, if you have enough faith, in who? In what? Because so often this faith movement will say, if you want something enough, is really what they're trying to say. If you want it enough, you can get it. And it's a repackaging of the American dream. If you confess it, if you speak it out loud, you'll get it, whatever it is. It's a load of nonsense. A load of nonsense. That's having faith in faith. That's having faith in positive thinking. Faith in, in just saying things. Name it and claim it. Instead of actually having faith in Christ and being connected to Him, that's where the power is. And this is the big picture of the mustard seed. It's not about how small you are. It's about how big our God is by comparison. It's not about whether you think you can do it. Do you believe God can do it? It's not about how big your church is. Do you believe our God is big? It's not about how perfect your church is. It's about how perfect the God is who forgives us continually, time after time, and gives us grace that's new every day. It's not about how big your problem is, or how addictive your sin is, or how great your gifts are, or how great your gifts were, or how imperfect everyone else is, because we're all muddling through as best as we can. This is about the greatness of God. Because even when we are small, even when we feel weak, even when we're bent over in two, whenever we're far away from him and passive-aggressive, and whenever we are weak, it's still not about us. Because if you can get your eyes on him, 
if you can look to him, that's where the power is. That's where the growth is. Do we trust in him and his size and his strength and his power? And for me, that's the power, that's the lesson of the mustard seed. That's the, the message. It's not about thinking, okay, God will turn me into a mighty oak. I'm a small Christian. I've got a small faith, but I'm going to become big and I'm going to become powerful and I'm going to be able to cast a shadow on the world around me and I'm going to have this great influence. No. It's saying, I am small. And I'll always maybe be small to God. In the great scheme of things, that to the world I'll be small. But I'm looking to a God who's mighty. I'm looking to a God who's bigger than anything that's going to come my way. And I will move that mountain. And I will overcome it. Not because I am big, but because He is big. And I, even if my faith is weak and small like that little mustard seed, it's enough because He is big. He is big. Please get it out of your heads, folks, that you have to be perfect before God moves. Please get it out of your head that you have to have it all sorted out and then God kind of rubber stamps the blessing. That's not grace. That's not the goodness of God as a father to his children. It's whenever we are still weak and failing and, and missing it so often, his power, his strength. That's the goodness of God. That's the grace of God. That's the wonder of being brought into his family. And so we rest in it and we rejoice in that. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing another one and then I'll, I'll come up and close off the meeting in prayer. Thanks, guys.